Oh Lord, what a mess, what a mess your creation has made of your glory. And I, I pray, I pray that you would take hearts in here that have not completely yielded to you and submitted in dependence upon you, that you would conquer the hardness. And God, that we be a people completely relying on you. God, if there's any foundation of self-reliance in here, any of us trying to live in our own strength, God, that you remove us from that feeble foundation and place us in the security of your strength. So Jesus, when we come to these things that we cannot handle, when we come against the enemy, may we not hesitate to call upon your name. And so even now, we call upon your name to teach us from your word that it's not by our strength that we run, but it's by your grace that you give us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So when I read Genesis chapter 3, I'm always left asking, what happened? Here God made a perfect paradise for his people, they were happy, they were satisfied, and he placed two trees in the midst, and he said, here's the tree of life, eat of it, you demonstrate dependence, your life dependence on me from eating of it, then there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God made the simple command, you shall not eat of this tree, from the day that you eat of it you shall die. God gave them freedom over everything. They were the king and queen of his creation, the representatives of his glory. And he says, just don't do this one thing because I want to protect this perfect, happy paradise that I've made for you. This is for your benefit that I ask of you not to eat of this tree. Otherwise, you have perfect freedom. And so, we read the story and think, how easy. <laughs> we have it made. And all they had to do is not eat this tree. They've got everything. Why not just forget about that one? But alas, we read the story and they mess it up. And I always scratch my head and think, how did this happen? And so what I want to do tonight is give us some background, then move into some theology, and then move into some practicality. So you guys are going to get the whole shebang tonight. <laughs> Some background into how can this even happen, and then the theology into how did what happened here wreck everything, not just Adam, but it wrecked everything in creation, and then practically, how do we prevent this disaster from furthering in our own lives? So, that's where we're going. The background of this whole thing is... The origination of sin. We have some serious questions to ask ourselves about this serpent. He just shows up, slithering onto the scene, and he starts tempting Eve to do things that God told her not to do. Clearly he's evil. Now, there's not much question about who he is, for when we read Revelation 12 verse 9, we read that, the great dragon was thrown down the ancient serpent who is called the devil 
and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So Revelation links the devil to this serpent. And so we know that Satan has, in some way, come before Adam and Eve in the form of the serpent. Now, was it a literal snake that was talking, slithering along, and, and wrapped around the tree like all the pictures have, talking to Eve? Was Satan somehow talking through the animal? We don't know. Um, it's probably more likely that the serpent was one of the most glorious creatures of God's creation, totally different than what we know of today, because part of the curse was that the thing had to slither. So it at one time apparently didn't slither. It was possibly standing erect and upright, maybe even had wings, perhaps was even arrayed with light and glory. For you could read, as Mark, um, uh, G. Campbell Morgan um, suggests, you could actually translate serpent to be shining one. So whatever this creature is, it is the devil. Or at least all that represents the devil. In such a way that Eve is not completely blown out of the water, there's some sort of familiarity here, and there's also some sort of attraction. Possibly the most glorious being she'd ever laid eyes upon. Now, Jesus said that the devil, John 8:44, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And in Genesis 3, he is nothing short of that. He's a murderer and a liar from the very get-go. And we see complete evil in this creature. How did sin ever come into being in a perfect universe? We don't know. That's a mystery. And one which the Bible leaves us dark on. It doesn't explain how it's possible that sin popped up in the middle of a perfect universe. But what it does say is Satan is the originator and somehow God um, permitted Satan to sin for the propelling of his purposes. So, God is sovereign in this sin category. He allowed it to originate. God didn't just, it's not like Lucifer, Satan just all of a sudden got strength and decided to box God and God lost the match and said, great, now we've got an enemy. This was part of God's plan for his, the furtherance of his glory was that there's an enemy to contrast his righteousness against. So, Satan was allowed to sin. How did this happen? A couple passages if you want. Go to Ezekiel 28. There is a passage there about the king of Tyre. Now, the prophet is comparing the king of Tyre to Satan. So we're getting some background info on Satan here in this passage. Ezekiel 28 verse 13. Now, um, some people like to place the fall of Satan right in between verse 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. Where did that chaos come from in Genesis 1 verse 2? Well, Satan fell and he ruined the earth. I don't buy that interpretation. Um, we talked about that months ago in Genesis chapter 1. 
But for a second reason, I don't buy it, because right here in Ezekiel 28, verse 13, it says, you, referring to the devil, you were in Eden, the garden of God. So, Satan, before his fall, was in Eden. Therefore, I conclude that somewhere between chapter 2 and 3, not revealed in this text, something traumatic happens. A huge rebellion in which Satan apparently leads. We conclude, uh, going through, go to verse 15 in Ezekiel 28. So, he was walking in garden, he's some cherub of God, but then, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. <laughs> Why did this happen? Satan was in Eden, apparently as God's guardian cherub, but then God had an issue with him, so he cast him. You're on the other side now. You've officially become my enemy. And now he slithers up to Eve as this evil being. Why did this happen? Go to Isaiah chapter 14 while I share with you Jude chapter 1 verse 6. Go to Isaiah 14. While you turn, Jude shares that there was apparently this rebellion amongst the angels. He says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So it appears there are these angels who had authority and positions, but they didn't like their authority and positions. They wanted something else. And so perhaps Satan was the ringleader of wanting something else. Well, in Isaiah... Chapter 14, verse 12, we have this poem of Satan, if you will. The, uh, the, um, the prophet, again, is talking about a king who had fallen, but he's likening the king to Satan's fall. So we have now, again, background being pulled in of Satan. And he says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down from the ground, you who laid the nations low, because you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will set it on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. That's a pretty lofty ambition. And yet this was the proud that he's, the pride that Ezekiel 28 said was found in his heart, so God cast him. Satan wasn't happy with his position. He had pride, and so he said, hmm, I'm going to insert my independence from God, my will above his will. I want to be like God. And so for whatever mysterious reason, however this could happen, God allowed the free choice of his creatures to exercise this rebellion. And he let them. He let them. Because they're serving him a purpose. So, I know that doesn't necessarily clear up a lot of answers, but that's the extent of what the Bible gives us on the origin of sin. 
But the point I want to see in the original sin, not the whole issue of how can it even possibly exist, and look, it just does. It's an assumed fact from the Bible. What I want to pull out of the original sin is how it originated. Satan wanting not dependence under God, but independence from God. He wanted to be the guy calling his own shots. From that act, sin tumbled down to Genesis chapter 3. And it is this that the serpent brings to Eve. So, when the serpent comes to Eve in verse 5 and says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like who? God, knowing good and evil. It, it, seeing that that is how Satan fell, wanting independence to do his own thing, to be God, it shouldn't surprise us that he now comes to Eve with the exact same temptation. Because that is the origination of sin. All sin, you could logically conclude in one way or another, say that it stems from this desire to be independent from God and to be your own God, thus calling your own shots of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. That is in the heart of all mankind essentially until God comes and subdues your will and says, I am now your God and we submit ourselves to Him. That's what Christians are. But before Christ, we were running our lives as our own gods. And, and God, the Hebrew here is Elohim, simply means judge. So Satan's effectively saying, you'll be like God. You'll be your own judge. You get to run life as you say. If you say that's right, it's right. If you say that's wrong, it's wrong. So you don't have to be dependent upon what he says. You get to do what you want to do. Be independent. Be free. Be your own God. And this motivation to move away from the tree of life and to eat from the tree of knowledge, to move away from dependence under God and to independence from God, this is the root of all sin. And this is where it originated. Man's desire to call his own shots. Not to be in subjection to God, but to be his own God. Satan fell, so he said, I know how to make Eve fall. And Adam. So he comes to them with this temptation. Separate yourself from God. Be independent. Now, it's not an easy thing to do to someone who's walking and talking with God in the garden in perfect harmony and fellowship with Him. It's not easy to persuade someone away from God. So, so what does Satan do? How does he get Eve to even, for a second, consider his proposition as worthwhile? He crumbles her confidence in the Word of God. And this he will always do when he wants us to walk away from depending on God. He will make your confidence in this word, in whatever God has said and commanded, He wants to crumble that confidence in two ways. First way is through doubt. Look at verse 1, the second part where Satan begins to talk. It says, Did God actually say? Look, look at the doubt He's already trying to offer Eve. Are, are you sure God said this? Are you sure? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman says to the serpent, We may eat of all the, 
the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, Satan is just so craftily, are you sure? And, and notice how he restructures the whole sentence. Look what God said in verse 16 of chapter 2. God said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Very positive. You're free. You may surely eat of everything. But what does Satan say? He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, God and Satan are saying the same thing, but in two completely different ways. God says you may surely eat of everything. Satan goes, you may not eat of everything. He's saying you have freedom, but there's, there's one thing that you can't. He's emphasizing the negative. Satan's making God's free command sound restricting. And, and so by doing this, you can see how Eve starts to think, maybe God is withholding good from me. He might have a point here. Emphasizing the negative, making God sound more restrictive. Satan always, always, always wants us to doubt that God is being good to us in what he commands. We often look around and say, but I want this, and why won't God let me do? And we, we, we want, and Satan wants us to look that way. Look for what you don't have. Did God really say, you may surely not eat from every tree? <laughs> but guys, please, learn Psalm 8411 that says, God does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. In layman's terms, it basically says that God gives everything that's good for you when you need it. So, if you don't have it, it's not good for you. But Satan wants you to look at what you don't have and think that God is withholding what is good for you. So, he attacks Eve, confidence in God's word by making her doubt his goodness, and then secondly, by denying God's word. He denies the truth of God's word in verse 4. Now, the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. That's a blatant lie. What did God say in chapter 2 verse 17? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan says, No. You shall not surely die. A blatant lie. He's just full on, even starting to, okay, she's starting to see, you maybe have a point, I'm starting to doubt that maybe God's really looking for my good, and now when he has her in her weakest moment, he just says flat out, you know what? You shall not surely die. And I can see Satan at this point, okay? You guys notice how um, Eve added, God never said don't touch it, but she said, we shouldn't touch it. I can see Satan at this point catching her weakness and saying, you shall not surely die, as he leans against the tree and touching it. See? <laughs> I could just see that. And he was probably thinking, you're so wise. And so, Satan causes her confidence in God's word to crumble by making her doubt the goodness of the word and denying the truth of his word, so that now he's able to move her in to this place of um, desiring something outside of God. This independence. I'm going to be my own creature. I don't need to be under God. 
I'll just be with God, but doing my own thing. So, that, my friends, is the origin of sin. This is where it all comes from, the desire for independence. Now, let's move on, just for a second. Well, it actually might be more of a bulk, but <laughs> to the theology section. I want to know, when I look at this story, so... Adam and Eve sin. That's great. Cast them out of the garden, God. And then let us have a chance. Isn't it only fair? I didn't get a chance at that serpent. I would have shocked him in the eye. Well, maybe not. <laughs> you see, this... It, when Adam sinned against God, the Bible teaches that... He sinned in... And by the way, I know the woman ate and then the man ate, but the Bible blames Adam because she was deceived, but Adam wasn't. He just said, Alright, she ate it, I'll eat it. Adam blatantly said, I'm going to be independent from God. So that's why the Bible, if you're wondering, puts the sin on Adam and not on Eve. So, girls, you're off the hook tonight. I can totally make fun of you some other time. But the Adam is his head. He... He, he was representing humanity there in the garden. And, and the Bible teaches that when Adam sinned, he sinned in such a way that you sinned too. So that the guilt that is on Adam was somehow accounted to you when he sinned. In such a way that you are equally as responsible as Adam is responsible. His guilt was accounted to you. <laughs> Thanks. In theology, we call this, this is the fancy word, imputation. God imputed the sin of Adam onto you. That basically means he transferred it. He put it on your account. <laughs> there are three theories regarding this imputation. I mean, how did it actually come about? Three basic ones I'm going to share. Only one's true and biblical. Um, each of these are named after the guy who made the teaching popular. They're all dead by now. These, this is way back when the church first started and stuff. The first is the Pelagian theory. And this one basically states that God imputes sin only to the one who sins. In other words, you're born not a sinner. You don't become a sinner until you sin. Once you sin, God imputes, meaning he counts you sinful, once you commit the sin. Now, that might be how a lot of us grow up thinking, and how a lot of people like to think about sin, but that's not what the Bible teaches. We must reject this theory because David said in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David says, from the very beginning, when I was still in my mother's womb, I was in sin. I was an iniquitous being. I don't even know if that's a word, but it sounds very sinful, very bad. I was bad from the minute I was born, David says. So we must reject the Pelagian theory. I hope I'm not butchering that guy's name. <laughs> the second theory is the Arminian theory. Some of your minds are instantly going to Arminianism versus Calvinism. Don't worry, we're not getting into that. The Arminian theory, he taught that Adam's sin did not 
fully corrupt, but only merely weakened the will of man to remain sinless. So in other words, um, we're all born, because of Adam, our will to worship and follow God has been weakened. Now, we're not born in sin, but we're uh, inevitably going to become sinful because we are really weak beings that can't live up to the standards of God. So we're not born in sin, but if you somehow could keep all God's laws perfectly, then you would actually be a perfect being. But that can't possibly be the state according to the Bible. We must reject this view on the basis of Jesus' own teaching in John chapter 3, the famous chapter, John 3.16, talking to Nicodemus, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Unless you're born again as spirit, you can't go into the kingdom of heaven. You can't go in as flesh, he's saying. Now, here's why we can't go into the kingdom of God as flesh. Because, Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So... We have to be moved from just being mere mortal born flesh to being born in the Spirit. Because we're hostile to God. Therefore, we don't become condemned when we're born. It's not like you're born pure and then you sin and you become a sinner. You're born as a sinner. Because Jesus went on to say this. Whoever believes in Him, God, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You're condemned already. The wrath remains on you. What Jesus is clearly teaching there in John 3 is that you are born with the wrath of God already on you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. So we are born in this state of sinfulness. And that's the third theory, the only one, I'm going to call it the biblical theory, it's the Augustinian theory. He taught that God has imputed Adam's sin to all mankind. So, you were born a sinner because Adam sinned for you. And God imputes the sin from Adam to you in such a way that you are still responsible for the sin that's been, that's been imputed to you. So, we don't become sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. We're born sinners, that's why we sin. There's no point where we become damned. You're born in this state thanks to Adam and that's why all of mankind is corrupt and the whole world is messed up. Thank you very much, Adam. But God chose to impute his sin to us. Romans 5.12 is where we get this whole teaching. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So, the results of this sin is, number one, 
depravity. This is a fancy theological term that basically says that you have total corruption of the mind, or sorry, of your of your total corruption of your moral nature. Um, you have a lack of affection for God and a perverted obsession for sin. That's what depravity in a nutshell is. Because of this imputed sin, we're all born in the state of depravity. You will see this with Adam right there in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hear God coming, so what do they do? We're in trouble, I want heaven, we've got to go to God. No. The complete opposite. The depravity of man just turning the other way from God and hiding from God. People say, he found God. He's saved now. Oh. No, nobody finds God. God finds you. What, was it Adam in verse 9 calling out for God? God, where are you? I messed up. Adam was hiding. God called for him. That's why the Bible says, 1 John 4.19, that we love him because he first loved us. His love for you awakened your heart to him. Nobody's looking for God. Quite the contrary. Paul says in Romans 3.10, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. But, 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 no, no one seeks for God. Because we're dead. This is part of our depravity. We're, we're dead in our sin. Before coming to Christ, all of humanity is dead. Like a corpse. Think about a corpse. A corpse cannot go seek something, and a corpse cannot respond to something. Um... A dead body is not going to come looking for me, and when I flick its nose, the dead body is not going to respond to me. That's what it means to be dead in sin. We aren't looking for God, and we have no concern for God. Our affections for Him are whatever. It's about my way, the highway, my will. It's not until God comes and, and touches us and, and brings life to us, then we can say, oh, I can respond to God. So that's part of the imputation of sin, is that we're in this depraved, dead state. Our whole nature is corrupt, and our affections for God are lacking, and our obsession for sin is full-blown. We want our will, and do not want God's will. So the first result is imputed sin is depravity. Second is guilt. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. So, they had an awareness of the sin. It made them aware that they're naked, which is basically the self-consciousness now initiated. They had realization of self that they were guilty. They were not in a proper state before God. They couldn't be seen before God. They had some sort of an obligation to be punished by God. Guilt set in, so they decided to cover it up with fig leaves. Exactly what our religions try to do. Just cover it up with good works. Not going to do it. God still knew they were naked. In fact, even Adam admitted, even after putting leaves on, he knew he was still naked. 
third result of this imputation of sin is penalty. There's penalty for our sin. And the wages of sin is death. God says to himself, eat of the tree, you will die. We see that in the last paragraph of Genesis 3, where God casts man out of the garden. Because as we looked at in the previous study, death is nothing more than separation. You die physically, spirit separates from the body. You die spiritually, spirit separates from God. You, you, uh, you die eternally, you're in an eternal state of your spirit being separated from God. That's what death is. It's separation and this is the consequence, it's the penalty of this imputed sin. But, there's good news. Because this imputed sin is not the only type of imputation in the Bible. There's at least three. The first we've already looked at. God imputed Adam's sin to us. Boo. But number two. God imputed our sin on Jesus when he went to the cross. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he became sin who knew no sin. Your sin was imputed on him. 1 Peter chapter 2 says he bore in himself, in his body, our iniquities. So, and then the third imputation, so all of mankind has been imputed from Adam's sin, Adam's sin imputed to us, um, then all of mankind as well. The sins of the whole world were put on Jesus. They have been cleared away. But there's only one special group of people who received the third imputation, and that is the righteousness of Jesus being transferred into your account. So in the same way that the sin of Adam was imputed to us, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. So the sin of Adam is taken away and the righteousness of Jesus is imputed. And that's, that's the wonderful good news is that we can... You say it's unfair that one man brought the sin into the whole world, but guess what? Jesus came as one man to bring righteousness to the whole world. That's where Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says, Therefore... As one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Jesus is the last Adam. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Adam was the first Adam, obviously. But Jesus came as the last Adam. He was a type of Adam. How so? Well, Adam came and brought death. Jesus came and brought life. Adam came and brought sin. Jesus came and took away sin. Adam was tempted and fell. Jesus was tempted and succeeded. This imputation of Jesus' righteousness as the last Adam was, was imputed upon Adam and Eve in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They were guilty. They were naked. They covered it up with leaves. But God took an animal, killed it, all the blood and all, and took the skin and covered Adam and Eve so that they're no longer naked. He said, your guilt is gone. A perfect picture of what Jesus would come to do. Give his life, blood, skin and all, so that our 
nakedness could be covered. The sin that was imputed to us from Adam is gone and now Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. It, it is covering us. That is the beauty of Jesus being the last Adam. He came and fixed what Adam messed up. The first man screwed it all up. But Jesus came new Adam, new chance, and fixed everything. So that in Him we become new creations. The whole story, in a sense, starts over in Jesus. So, moving to our practical close. If Jesus is the last Adam, and He was tempted in Matthew 4, should we not depend upon Him when we're tempted? Why, why would we dare sever ourselves in independence and think that we can be our own God and make our own shots when Jesus is offering us righteousness in place of our sin? We, we, we can't afford the danger of depending upon ourselves when Satan comes to us with temptation. Eve did. He offered her, look, be independent, be your own God. And what does she do in verse 6? It says, she saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. She looked at it and assessed the situation in her own strength. And what, what catches me here is this whole time, Satan and Eve are having this discussion about God, and never once does Eve call out to God, or talk. God. Here she is facing the biggest trial of her life, big temptation, and rather than calling to God, she just talks about him to the serpent. Full self-reliance here. It reminds me of the song, uh, You Won't Relent. I think you guys, uh, some of you know it. Michelle used to sing it, that college group. You Won't Relent. Those lyrics are say, I don't want to talk about you like you're not in the room. I want to look right at you. I want to sing right to you. And here's Eve talking about Jesus, talking about God like he's not even around, not even calling on him for help, just talking about him. Guys, we should talk to him. We should look to him. But Eve didn't look to him. She looked to the tree. Self-reliant. A huge danger. Look at Peter. Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. Impossible! I'll die before I deny you! A couple hours later, what does Peter do? Before the rooster even crows that night, he denied him three times. Oh, Peter. Strong in self. So what mistake can we avoid that Eve, Adam, and Peter all made? This mistake. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. They thought they were strong and that they had it together. They didn't depend upon God. So, that's why they fell. So, what we need is dependence upon God. That daily coming to the tree of life, our tree of life, Jesus, and saying, I cast myself upon you. I want to suggest in closing three ways that we can demonstrate dependence on Jesus so that we don't exercise the root of sin, which is independence from Him. Number one, understand that though the Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. 
Understand that. Don't be shocked by it. Because Paul said in Romans 7.18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I desire to do what is right, but the inability to carry it out. <laughs> Evil lurks within us. Don't be surprised if you feel sometimes like a pig that is yearning to jump into the slime of sin. It's in there. It's in your flesh. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? When Adam ate the fruit, it's as if he swallowed with it the seeds of every conceivable sin. So that every sin, every sin, possible sin, could actually develop in your heart. None of us, apart from the grace of God, are incapable of doing the most ludicrous, insane sins possible. That is how wicked our hearts are and how corrupt and depraved our flesh is. Robert Murray McShane, this old Scottish preacher, back, Irish preacher back in the day, is dead. Um, he related us to gunpowder. Just waiting for the slightest spark to ignite us in the full passion of sin. Let me quote him. He says, As long as powder is wet, it resists the spark. But when it becomes dry, it is ready to explode at the first touch. As long as the Spirit dwells in my heart, He deadens me to sin, so that if lawfully called through temptation, I may reckon upon God carrying me through. But when the Spirit leaves me, I am like dry gunpowder. And the first spark will ignite me. So we need desperately to understand that though our spirits want to depend on Jesus, our flesh is desperately weak and going the other way. And we need to do something about that and, and cry for more of the Spirit of God to constrain us by God's grace. <clears throat> Therefore, let us pray, number two, let us pray that we do not enter into temptation. Oh, I thought, okay. Watch and, it sounds weird. Watch and pray, Jesus said. That you enter not into temptation because the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. He said that to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his crucifixion. What did Peter do? He didn't pray. He slept. What happened to Peter? He relied on his own strength and he fell. Jesus taught us to pray that we don't enter into temptation because he knew the corruption of our flesh that left to our own strength we're going to go headlong into it so Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer the last petition pray that you enter not into temptation lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil David also understood this Psalm 19 verse 13 he prayed keep your servant back from presumptuous sins and don't let them have dominion over me Praying in such a way confesses to God that we are so unable and that we need Him and it places us under His dependence. Oh, under His, makes us dependent under Him. Peter eventually learned this after he messed up. Because when he wrote the epistle, first Peter, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, he writes to them, Look, God resists the proud brothers, but He gives grace to the humble. He gives help to the humble. The one that prays, God, I know that I'm so vile. I just need to trust you and depend upon you lest I go and do everything that I have needed and ruin my life. I need you. And praying in such a way 
puts us in a humble position under God and he's able to then give us that grace. But Peter slept instead and relied upon himself. And then number three. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3.16 Let it dwell in you richly. Had Eve allowed the word of Christ to dwell in her richly, she would not have doubted his word nor denied it. What Satan said, she would have seen right through and called his bluff. She clearly didn't know his word very well because what God said in Genesis 2 verse 16 and 17, she rephrased and omitted words and added words. If you compare them, it's very interesting. She, she had no idea what he really said. She had a vague recollection, this basic thought, and, she, and she, it changed in her mind. And she was led astray. We must let God's word dwell richly in us. Jesus did. It's how he overcame the devil. Three times he said what? It is written. The word of God dwelt richly in him and he defeated that serpent with it. That's why David, who's no dummy, concluded, well I think David wrote this, Psalm 19, we don't know who wrote it, but the psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I, I memorize the word, he says. And far better than memorizing the word is that we internalize the word. That it dwells in us so richly that when Satan brings a bluff, we can call it and say, Oh, you're misquoting the word there, buddy. I'm not doubting God's word. I'm not going to deny it through your little deceit and cunning cleverness. That's it. Understand, guys, that we're so corrupt. So then pray for help. Always, every day is my prayer. Every day, lead me not into temptation. Let your grace guard me and keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. And then let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We do these things, you are demonstrating the utmost dependence upon God. And you're not going to fall into the root of all sins, which is independence from God. I can do this. I'm going to be my own God calling the shots right and wrong. So, let's pray. Father, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. That's your warning to us. May we not make the mistake that Adam and Eve did and, and go through life not even calling upon you. But God, may we depend on you and eat from your tree of life every day, coming to be enriched in your word and humble in prayer. So lead us and guard us in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.